1: hello everyone welcome back to the history hit warfare podcast i'm your host james rogers and in this episode we're looking at a commando raid that changed the course of the second world war i've pulled this one out of the dan snow's history hit archive because it is an astonishing story in october 1942 the british launched a small raid on the channel island of sark there are a cast of characters involved in this one, which in the end they'd give their colleague Ian Fleming a few ideas for his future secret agent James Bond, but they crept ashore and they aimed to capture German prisoners. They did this, but a scuffle broke out and two of the prisoners were killed. The commandos managed to escape with one prisoner and that might well have been the end of it, but when Hitler found out he went ballistic and very shortly after he issued his infamous commando order. Henceforth any commando found would be shot on sight. This was another ratcheting up of the ferocity and criminality of the Nazi war effort. So in this podcast, Dan travels to the Channel Islands, he meets local experts, and he retraces those very steps from this infamous raid.
2: to a headland on the south coast of Sark in the Channel Islands. I've got a low autumnal sun which is turning this cerulean blue water around me, silver as it shines down over Jersey. I can see about eight miles away and this is a precipitous cliff but it wasn't too precipitous for the British commandos because here in October 1942 they launched one of their more famous raids. Britain had been driven out of the continent following Dunkirk in 1940. And Winston Churchill was determined that the fighting would be taken to the Germans on the continent, not just in theatres like North Africa.
0: First of all, they did a bunch of these. Like, this was not the only time they ever did a raid like that. And the other ones they'd done were particularly successful. And it came out of Churchill's mind that like, Churchill couldn't bear the idea that parts of the British Isles were occupied by the Germans, and nothing much was happening there. So Sark was described by the Germans as a, an, a you know, a perfect little island of paradise, The RAF wouldn't bomb it, so the Germans were there. It was like a holiday camp for them. This was unbearable for Churchill.
2: The commandos were formed, and they carried out a series of raids. Famously, there was a large amphibious raid on Dieppe, but there were raids at places like San Jose. There were raids in Norway, all sorts of raids. This raid on the Channel Islands was designed to gain intelligence about... German building on the Channel Islands, the so-called Atlantic Wall, which was a huge series of fortifications designed to stop Allied invasion of northwest Europe, but it was also designed to check on the people of Sark. They were subjects of His Majesty King George VI, after all, the only British subjects that have been incorporated into the Nazi-German Empire. Uh, And this raid took place led by a guy called Geoffrey Appleyard, and on the night of October the 3rd, very late, just before midnight, on the night of October the 3rd, he led his men, 12 men, up this cliff that I'm standing on now and inland.
3: It was the second attempt to land on the island. It was, a, it was the usual formula in that they were trying to take prisoners of war to uh, find out, get some intelligence and find out enemy dispositions on the island. On the night of the 3rd of October, which was actually a very hot, sunny day in Sark, the force set off an operational basalt on MTB 344, which That's was
2: a, a, a motor torpedo boat. so yes, very, very
3: fast. Stripped down one, which was faster than average, oh. commanded by Lieutenant Freddie Bourne. Uh, that crossed the channel and oh. uh, went south about Sark and approached the coupe, the causeway between Big and Little Sark. And it was challenged there by a searchlight, a German searchlight, uh, that asked them to identify themselves. They very coolly responded uh, in German with a searchlight to say that they were uh, an E boat with engine trouble. So flashing a light on and off, so Morse code. Yes, in German. In German. In, in, in German. Yeah, uh, they were given clearance, so they put into Derrible Bay next to uh, Pointe Chateau, uh, which is known locally that the headland there is the Hog's Back. They landed in what was known as a, a goatly boat, which was a collapsible wooden boat, a, a, a very basic canvas and, and wood thing. Landed on the headland, they climbed up the rocks scaled the rocks. It wasn't a particularly difficult climb. When they got to the top, it was full moonlight, which was time to aid them with their escape. When they got to the top, they thought they saw some uh, enemy soldiers, and they waited for a while, actually, only to find out that they were targets, because it was a range. So they proceeded from there.
0: They have what they call primary target, which you realise when you do the research that primary target means the first house they're going to run into. Then secondary target is the second house. They had no idea what the Germans were. They had no idea was on the island. They, They found that, like, a Napoleonic cannon which from the air they thought was a German machine gun emplacement, turned out to be a relic of the 18th century.
3: They were heading for the first building, uh, which was a cottage in a valley nearby, and they were basically going to knock on the door and try and get any information they could. They arrived, it wasn't occupied, um, so they they, they carried on. The point man was an officer called Lieutenant Anders Lassen, who was a Dane serving in the British Army. So they carried on across the valley, Lassen then led them up the other side of the valley, they followed an earth bank which is still there, you can actually retrace it, um, and appeared at a house called La Jaspellerie. Uh, Now when they got there uh, Geoffrey Appleyard decided that they were going to go in and and find someone this time so they actually broke a window, got inside and uh, Geoffrey Appleyard and one of the uh, other soldiers went upstairs and they found a lady there by herself who was one of the soldiers actually described as an elderly lady. When you look back, she was in her late 30s. Oh, (laughs) ancient. She was a Mrs Pittard. She was recently widowed. She'd been married to the Doctor of Sark, who was a very popular man. She was very helpful. She told them everything she knew about the Germans there. She gave gave them some uh, copies of the, the local newspaper, and uh, she let them take some food and this was quite interesting they were keen to take that and it was the commanders wanted to take it back to be analyzed to see the quality of the food of the bread that was being produced uh, to get an idea of how hungry everybody was there so once they'd completed that jeffrey Upperyard offered her the opportunity to return to england with them um, she declined but they asked where the nearest germans were she indicated that they were just up the track at what is now a hotel so it was about 150 metres away and we're pretty certain of the route that they took to get there. There was a covered route. They made their way up towards this building, the D-car it's called. There were basically, there were some German pioneers, some engineers were billeted there. And these were chaps who, they weren't frontline soldiers, they were engineers who were working on the defences of Krur Harbour, uh, putting up a, a sort of a, a barricade there. There was one man on guard. So they stopped in what would have been their final assault position for what we probably call it now. Um, And interestingly, the man who used to own the property was an ex-army officer, and uh, he uh, was visited by the radio operator from this raid, who actually talked him through the whole thing and what happened on the night. And you can see where they actually stopped, and from where Anders Lassen went forward to do the close recce, he found one German sentry on guard who was, like most sentries, in the middle of the night, um, you know, was just ambling around, not paying that much attention. He went back, reported to Appleyard and said that he could handle it. So Appleyard sent him forward and uh, Anders Lassen killed him with a knife. He stabbed him in the back with a Fairbairn Sykes dagger and they said they could hear, the radio operator said, you could hear the muffled noise, the the cry um, go up. So they were in, basically. Once they heard that, they went forward, they left the radio operator plus one in the final assault position so that they, they could escape afterwards. They were then looking for prisoners, so there was an annex on the side of the D car, which was a corrugated iron building. It was actually half an old Presbyterian chapel, which the Sarkis had bought from, from Wales. And this was uh, accommodation for the, for, for the soldiers. Appleyard organised everybody. They got inside in, in the connecting corridor, and on his signal, they each went into a room to seize the soldiers that were in there. There's an account from one of the corporals who was involved, Corporal Redbourne, um, which it was a a slightly chaotic, a bit comical, in that, um, of course, the German soldiers didn't know what was going on. Corporal Redbourne said that he pulled the blanket off the soldier in his room, who pulled the blanket back up again. This happened three or four times. They didn't know what was going on. And then they started fighting, and it was quite a, a fist fight. They got the prisoners out into the corridor and there were quite a few of them so they tied them up, that's where the problems really began. Uh, while they were in the corridor and they were getting more prisoners out, some of the prisoners, uh, German prisoners, realised that actually there weren't many commandos there, so they started acting up a bit and started giving them trouble. It got to the point where the commanders were struggling to keep control of them, these guys were, were, were starting to make a noise, the, the prisoners, and they attempted to break free. One of them woke the rest of the guards. They called out the guards. So by this stage, the, the British commanders had real trouble. They were outnumbered and they didn't know where the Germans were coming from. They were probably surrounded. It's said then that uh, one of the officers gave the order to shoot prisoners. Certainly there was shooting and fighting. Apparently, Corporal Resborn says that uh, Anders Lassen just held on to two prisoners himself without shooting and managed to keep them under control. One of them in his account said that the, uh, he, he had a particularly big prisoner, he ended up fighting with him on the ground. Uh, quite nasty punch-up and lots of shooting. There's still uh, splash, there's still bullet damage on one of the cottages over there from it because the guard had come out and really no one could see anything, it was dark, they were shooting. Um, Appleyard managed to get them away and they got away with one prisoner.
0: They got not just any German. This is like one of the unknown things about it. When you do a little bit of research and digging, the guy they got was the commander of the group. When all the others began running away, panicking and thinking they could do this, the one guy who kind of knew what he was doing, the commander, realized this is really a stupid idea, we'll just go with the British and get in the boat and you know. There's no reason to resist. We could die. And they did die, some of them. So the guy they captured actually was the one guy who could tell them stuff about the mines. And and not not just in um, in Sark, they had just come from France. So he could talk about stuff that was very relevant to the D-Day landings. And it was, he was considered a gold mine of intelligence.
3: So there were no British casualties. Uh, they got one prisoner and they killed three who are buried in Fort George Cemetery over here. They retraced their route in the dark, running flat out, and they were pursued by the whole guard.
2: They rode their little dory out to the waiting
3: motor torpedo
2: boat, which had been given strict instructions to leave by 2.30 in the morning if Appleyard had not returned. It was now 3.30 and as they rode out to this most torpedo boat, they heard its engines go on, it was about to abandon them. They made it to the boat in the nick of time and it was able to power back across the channel at around 40 knots, making it back to British waters before daybreak.
0: Germans didn't know what hit them. Right? They didn't, it, was, it is pitch black. They have no idea what's gone on. They know there's been some shooting and some guys have been taken. They don't know what's happened. And in the morning, they find some bodies. And they realize that some of their men have been, you know, the British have gotten away and some of their men have been killed and the men who have been killed and had their hands tied. Word goes to Hitler. He says this is a war crime. He's shocked. You know, imagine Hitler thinking, you know, he's, the, the hypocrisy, this is unbelievable. He's like absolutely shocked that somebody would do such a thing.
2: And he issued, mainly as a result of this raid, but influenced by other commando activity, he issued his infamous commando order. He said that the commandos should not be subject to the Geneva Convention because they were fighting in in a criminal manner. He said, in future, all terror and sabotage troops of the British and their accomplices who do not act like soldiers but rather like bandits will be treated as such by German troops and will be ruthlessly eliminated in battle wherever they appear.
0: Of course in discussions afterwards and analyses, it's debatable whether it's a war crime. You're not allowed to, to bind prisoners. However, on the battlefield while removing a prisoner, someone who's becoming a prisoner, it apparently is legal to bind them. You can't bind them in the camps, but on their way to the camps, you're allowed to. So the British had, had a defense of this. It was not illegal. And also it was under battlefield conditions. They were saving. if they had not done this, the Germans would one of them actually started beating up the British, even with his hands tied. Some realized what a horrific order it was. I mean, think Rommel was one of them who refused to carry it out. But the commander in Norway and several of the others really did take this seriously and began executing Allied prisoners in cold blood. So the, that was a terrible repercussion. And so you, you kind of weigh all the Allied commanders who were executed, weigh that the intelligence collected on Sark. Okay, maybe it wasn't worth it in that sense. But they couldn't have anticipated that the Nazis would start executing Allied prisoners. Some of
2: the people involved in the raid would go on to play a hugely important role in special forces and indeed in the foundation of the SAS.
3: Yes, that's right. It was an interesting unit, the SSRF. There were more officers probably than soldiers. Um, And they all, as you say, a lot of them went on to play a a key role in the rest of the war.
0: Geoffrey Appleyard had done his holidays as a child there. So he guided them. His guidebook was a a, a walking guide. It had been published in 1906, which is still in print. That's how they got them around the island. And so he, he used to climb the cliffs there for fun. And they, they built a model, and he looked at home movies. His family had a movie camera. They'd made home movies on sock. He looked at those to prepare for the raid. So it was kind of farcical and amateurish or whatever, but the results were spectacular, and Churchill demanded to meet with Appleyard immediately afterwards in Downing Street, and they met and they talked, you know. Churchill was very proud of what they'd done.
3: Jeffrey Appleyard formed part of one of the, uh, the earlier SAS units, and uh, he was the ops officer, and he was involved with the invasion of Sicily. A very sad story. Two of his men were jumping into Sicily to organise the partisans. Uh, he briefed them uh, and they were going to, to, to jump from an aircraft. And as he was walking past them, just on a spur of the moment, he decided he'd go with them just to, to see them off, is the sort of thing that, that, that you might do. So he climbed aboard and the aircraft was never seen again. It's believed that it, it was probably a blue on blue, probably shot down by maybe by a, a US battleship. So
2: invasion of Sicily, that's less than a year after he landed here in Sicily.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. All the officers on the raid were killed during the war. Not a single officer survived. There was that, that kind of bravery that in, inevitably they were all going to die. They all had illustrious careers, brave careers, you know, throughout the war.
3: Anders Lassen is a very well-known figure in the, the world of special forces because the raid on sark in his account, that was the first time that he killed uh, killed a man with a knife and from there his war just got bigger and bigger and and more notorious some of the fighting that he did in the islands in the mediterranean he's credited with clearing one side of a street by himself Um, sir peter de la billiere's book has got a chapter about him some extraordinary things that he did but he went on to be a squadron commander in one sas And sadly, he was involved in the uh, raid at Lake Camacchio in in northern Italy just before the end of the war, and he was personally leading a squadron. It's a very shallow lake, and they were advancing down a very narrow causeway, so there there, there was no way out. Uh, They came under fire, returned fire. It was quite a a serious firefight. But then the enemy position put up the white flag, and he went forward to take the flag. It was a ruse, and he was killed. And the rest of the squadron piled in and, and finished the job. But so that, that was the end of his war. He was the only non-Commonwealth soldier in the Second World War to be awarded the Victoria Cross. Uh, it was a date, an, an, an aristocrat, and quite a character, quite a lot written about him.
2: Did the Germans crack down on the people of Sark after? I mean, Sark, did Sark remain quite a cushy place?
3: To? No,
0: not at all. They, they, they immediately began deportations, and they started with the husband, who was American, of the Dame of Sark. He's one of the first that was taken off. A very large group was taken off right after that. So, I mean, they weren't punished in the way you'd be punished if you were in Poland, you know, or Ukraine. I mean, this was a different level of, of punishment. The Germans always treated the British with kid gloves. They were very careful how they treated the Channel Islanders, as you know. But this, they, it got pretty brutal, and pretty nasty at that point. And they reinforced Sark. I mean, they put many, many more mines. And Sark became much more of a fortress after that, for no reason.
2: This is an important milestone Marking the further descent of German forces into criminality and barbarism. As for Mrs. Pittard, she was arrested, she was deported, she was sent to a camp in Germany where she spent the rest of the war. But then this remarkable woman, who opened the door in her nightclothes and gave such valuable help to the commandos, came back to Sark where she lived. Until her death in 1969, and she's buried just up the way here in the churchyard.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.